As we begin this morning, we do so in Mark's account. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 27, the Bible says, Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. This is a day that tradition tells us was, the, was called the day of controversy, or it was the day of questions. Jesus is probably walking into the court of the Gentiles, and when it talks about the temple, it's not talking about the temple proper. It's not talking about the place of worship. It is talking about the temple court, and one of which was the court of the Gentiles. That was the most, that was the biggest place, and that was the place that allowed the majority of the people to go. Only Gentiles can go there. Notice what happens though. It's on Tuesday, Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and Mark records the third time that Jesus comes to that area. And we could just picture in our mind's eye as he's walking across the court of the Gentiles, and he's teaching people, and no doubt he is healing people. But on the scene, he is addressed by the following. There were the chief priests, they were the scribes, and also the elders, and they came to him in an obvious formal uh, delegation. Now, let's talk about the chief priests. Who were they? The chief priests were composed of the current high priest, the previous high priest, and also all the dignitaries that the current high priest would have allowed to be in that group. History tells us that the majority of the chief priests were under the Jewish sect of the Sadducees. We know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. The primary difference was the Pharisees believed in the resurrection while the Sadducees did not. The chief priests were composed primarily of Sadducees. Their job was the custodial rights to the temple. They were the ones that had the temple and it was in custody to them. That was one group of people that were there. What about the scribes? The scribes were the experts in the law. They were the ones that studied the law. They were the ones that interpreted the law. And interesting, in these two groups of people, the chief priests being the Sadducees, the scribes were primarily made up of Pharisees. But there was a third group too. And it, were, it was the elders. The elders were the respective heads of the tribes or the heads of tribal divisions. Now, it is probably true, as most scholars said, that the chief priests are leading the way. Now, I don't know how many people were there. The Bible doesn't say so. It just says that it was plural, so we have a, quite a few men, no doubt. And no doubt they're led by the chief priests. And the reason for that is the, the questions that are being asked have nothing to do with worship or law or the interpretation of the law, which would have involved the scribes. It's talking about the custodial rights of the temple. It's talking about in reference to what Jesus just did when he cleansed the temple. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 28, here is the first question. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now we find that inevitably they asked Jesus four questions. But the first two questions specifically refer to the Lord's interference with the temple market. And you know on the surface it might appear to be very reasonable. I mean after all, here comes a Galilean. 
And in their mind, so many people considered him just a Galilean carpenter. Here was a Galilean carpenter and his friends. People in Galilee were not educated. They didn't have higher education in Galilee. In fact, you remember in Acts chapter 2, I love that remark. When they're speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, they said, aren't all these that speak Galilean? In other words, they didn't teach languages in Galilee. So there was no one that had any credentials at all came out of Galilee. And that's also what is meant when it says nothing good came out of Nazareth. But here's the Lord. And he's on the scene. And they want to know, what are your credentials? Who gave you the authority? And what authority do you have to do what you have just done in the cleansing of the temple? Remember when Jesus came in and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Now picture this. What did the Lord do? All of a sudden he comes in, he overturns the tables of the money changers. He says, my father's house shall be a house of prayer you've made of the den of thieves. He overturned the chairs of those that sold the doves. And then he said, and get those cages out of here. He ran the people out that were the vendors that were selling in the market there. In the Gentile area of the marketplace there. Ran them out too. Ran the people out that were buying and selling. And even ran the people out that were making it some kind of a thoroughfare or a shortcut to go through from one city to the next. That's what he just did. And they want to know, where'd you get the authority? They want to know, where'd you get it? What authority do you have? Who gave it to you? In other words, Jesus is showing or demonstrating that he has superior jurisdiction. And they want to know why he did such things. Now, when you think about this very idea, first of all, understand, in the temple, in the courtyard of the Gentiles, Remember, it was a lucrative, bizarre business, and it was actually called the Sons of Annas. And I'll tell you something, like I even mentioned a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, I, I, I quoted my father-in-law, and my father-in-law always said, if you want to get a man's attention, you tap him on the wallet. If you really want to get somebody's attention, you just alter or you just affect their money. That's exactly what happened here. It was called the Bazaar of the Sons of Annas. And all these things were going on. It was a very lucrative business. And the Lord comes in and puts a stop to it all. No doubt, he has now got their attention. Now, where is his ordination? Where is his credentials? They want to know that he can interfere with temple protocol. But there was something else. They understood this too. That Jesus was unlike any man that ever lived. You remember when Jesus was preaching? They said no man taught or spoke as Jesus did. No one spoke with the authority of Jesus. No one was like Jesus. And you know what? There was a lot of people that followed Jesus for all manner of reasons while he lived in the last three years of his life. One of the reasons that people followed Jesus was because of his charisma. You know, we talk about people that have a charismatic personality. People that just, you're drawn to them because of their personality. What if... What if you were Jesus Christ and you have that charismatic personality and people are drawn to you, but in addition to that, you have healed their sick people, you have fed their hungry, you have raised their dead, you have caused blind eyes to see. Don't you see? The people that were rejecting Jesus still realized they had a great problem because now people are following Jesus. Remember Caiaphas? 
I don't understand this at all. I don't understand this at all. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Caiaphas said he raised him from the dead. He admitted it. He didn't say that people said he raised him from the dead. Caiaphas said he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what it says. And then Caiaphas said, we got to do away with him. We can't let this go. We can't let people follow this movement. People, these people, these chief priests realized they had a problem. But notice this. They want to know what his credentials are. They want to know where he gave the authority. They want to know all that stuff. And this is the response. But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question. Then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he said, the baptism of John... Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from men? And then he finishes by saying, again, answer me. Now, this phrase, baptism of John, refers to the entire work and teaching as a whole of John. And it was symbolized, obviously, in the baptism of repentance. Now, they got a dilemma here. You know why? Because the people considered that John the Baptist was a prophet. The people considered that. In fact, the Bible talks about John the Baptist. It says, it says that John the Baptist was greater than all the men in the land. And yet two things. He says to Jesus, I'm not even worthy of latching his sandals, as one translation renders it, because the one that's coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to bear his shoes. That was Jesus. The Bible does record, though, that there was no man like John the Baptist. And yet, interestingly, we find out in the Word of God, it says that the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist because John the Baptist was never in the church. That's how he talks about someone that's a Christian in the kingdom. Isn't that great? But notice, the people considered John the Baptist a prophet. Now, here's the problem. If they say that John the Baptist was not from heaven, now they got a problem with the people because the people considered him to be a prophet. All right, that's one thing. Can't do that. Can't say that. Now, if they said, wait a minute, John the Baptist was from heaven, then they have to admit something else. A passage that Brother Carl quotes quite often at the table. I love that. John the Baptist declared Jesus as the Messiah. The world considered John the Baptist a prophet. John the Baptist considered Jesus the Messiah. And in John 1 and 29, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. They got a real problem. They got a real dilemma. If they said he's not from God, now they got a problem with the people because he's a prophet. If they say he was of God, then they're going to say, Wait a minute. John the Baptist that was from God said that Jesus was the Messiah. So, all that happens. All that problem. So they reasoned it out. They reasoned among themselves. And if you go down a couple of verses, we find this in verse 33. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I think it's important to note the following. They were not concerned with what was true. Please get this. They were not concerned with what was true. 
Number two, they were not concerned with what was right. Number three, they were only concerned with what was safe. I read one commentary. You know what he said? He said, isn't that the perfect picture of the crowd pleaser or the hypocrite? Not really concerned about the truth. Not really concerned about what's right. But only concerned with what was safe. That's all they cared about. That's all they cared about. What was safe. In an attempt to save themselves from the dilemma, you know what they said? They professed ignorance. You've heard me say this. You've heard me talk about ignorance. Why does Jesus in John chapter 8 condemn ignorance? Because ignorance in that passage was willful. And remember this. Willful ignorance always runs hand in hand with willful rejection. That's fact. It's kind of like an agnostic. That's a willful not-knower. You're putting yourself in a willful category or willful classification of a not-knower. That's exactly what they were doing. They didn't have the guts to stand for what was right. They really didn't care. All they knew is we got to do what's safe. So they're going to say, well, we don't know. We don't know. And they say, basically, in essence, they were refusing to tell Jesus. And Jesus refuses to tell them. And now we get to our little sermon. And you know, incidentally... Matthew is the only one that records this little parable. The only one of the four gospel writers. And this is what happens. He begins by saying, but what do you think? You know, I'm going to tell you. Sometimes people think when they look at the writings and the, and the words of Jesus. And the sermons that Jesus preached. Sometimes people think that they were just very simple and not very profound, and that is not true. Some of the deepest, most profound teaching in all the Bible are come from Jesus, and many of them came in the last week when he preached in these parables. Don't mistake the fact that he made it sound so simple as something that was not profound. It was extremely profound. So they said, where did you get the authority? He said, I'll answer that. Just tell me this. Did the baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? They said, well, we can't tell. Jesus said, neither I tell you. But then he says, but what do you think? What do you think? A man had two sons. He's going to give a tale here of two sons. And he came to the first son and he said, son, go work today in my vineyard. First of all, I love this because he begins the parable. He begins his sermon with the phrase, what do you think? He asked him a question. And you know what's going to happen in a few verses? He's going to end and conclude the sermon with another question that convicts them. But he begins with, what do you think? Now, the story at the very beginning seems to have little to do with the previous conflict between them. But quickly, it does end in a scathing rebuke of hypoc hypocritical leaders. Now, the phrase two sons literally means children. Now, those of us that have children, picture this. You got two kids. You got two kids. And you tell two kids, you tell both of them the same thing to do, and you get two different responses. Jesus is saying, now, I, got, I got one for you. What do you think? If a man has two sons. Now, the first son represents the sinners. Represents the sinner. The second one represents the religious leaders. And little did they know, he's preaching about sons, he's preaching about children, and he's talking about working in a vineyard. And he's going to make a very profound point. 
He goes to the first son and he tells the first son, I want you to go and work in my vineyard. Now, this is a picture of sinners too, because sometimes when Jesus was on the face of this earth and also John the Baptist, there were those that were rebellious at first, but later they would repent and obey. And then you have the religious elite and they profess to be godly and actually in contempt of his law. But the parable here shows that God is not interested in what somebody claims to do. That's just lip service. Nobody cares about that. God is not concerned with or interested in what somebody professes they will do. He's only interested in what someone professes or someone demonstrates that they will do. Whatever you do, that's what the Lord is concerned with. What a man actually does. Now, here the father speaks to the first son. And we learn from verse 30 that they both, had, they both had equal opportunity to work. Both had the opportunity to do their father what their father has asked. Their compliance is simply a product of attitude. And you know what? It's a product of free will. And I have to make this point. Please understand this. People do exactly what they want. That's a fact. Sometimes people say, well, I can't. No, it's not a matter if you can't. You won't. You won't. In my short little life, 51 years, I'm going to tell you, I have always done just about what I wanted. Sometimes I have justified an act saying I didn't have a choice, but yeah, you have a choice. We all have choices. In this little scenario, the two children, the two sons, they both have different attitudes to what the father had told them. Different attitudes. Now, free will is going to reign in each case. In Matthew 21 and verse 29, I want you to notice this. He answered and said, look, I will not. One scholar said this, Fowler said, it's better rendered in the original, and I love this because I think it's true. It's better rendered in the, in the original, I don't want to. I don't want to. Now, Folks, I'm going to tell you something. I don't do this very often. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to ask you to listen to me. I'm going to ask you to really listen to me. The reason that preaching on things like church attendance doesn't work is because it's not the problem. It's not. It is the outward manifestation of a greater problem, and that's the heart. And what we do, please listen. We justify our behavior and our choices by saying we didn't have a choice. We didn't have a choice. Something came up beyond my control. But I'm going to tell you something. If you really wanted to do something in your life, if you really wanted something, you would do everything it took. You'd get there. You'd, you'd get it done. I have never not done what I really wanted to do. That's a fact. When the first son says I will not, what he's saying is I don't want to. I'm not going in the vineyard and work for you, Father, because I don't feel like it. Okay? Just a little 50-cent tour, a little, free, a little freebie there. But I'm going to tell you, it's the truth. It's the truth. And it's, not, it's, it's everywhere. It's the heart of man. It's where people's hearts are. If your hearts are in a certain place, you'll do exactly what the heart wants. You'll be led in that direction. That's a fact. So if you have a problem with decisions, it's because you've got a problem with your heart. All of us. 
Here he says, I don't want to. There's no respect for his father here, only blatant exercise of selfish will. But you know, even hearts of ice can melt in time. Isn't that great? The father patiently allowed his son's bitterness to convict. Watch what happens. The first thing he says is, I will not. But then afterward, he regretted it, and he went. Now, the word regret in the New King James is the word in the Old King James, in the English language, the word repent. But the word repent here is not the typical word for repentance in the Bible. You know, the Bible talks about repentance. And what do we say when we talk about repentance? We're talking about, don't misunderstand me on this, we're talking about someone that has a change of their heart, which is a change of mind, that leads to a change of action. We know that. That's repentance. How many times have you heard me say, repentance is not being sorry? Okay? What's this mean? In the New King James, it says regret. In the Old King James, it says repent. So what are we talking about? It is talking about this. This young man, whoever, however he was, this first son, had deep remorse because of his decision prior. You ever have deep remorse? You see, this is a picture of how he felt. And not necessarily the outward demonstration of a change. Although, it did lead to a change. But the word is regret, meaning he had deep remorse. He had deep remorse. Now, may I say that deep remorse is only profitable and productive when you act upon it and change your behavior. Deep remorse is only worth anything if you change your behavior. You know what the perfect example of the flip side of that is? How about Judas? You think Judas had regret? You think Judas had remorse? Absolutely. He, he took the 30 pieces of silver back to them and he said, I have sinned. I have testified and sinned against the blood of Jesus, the innocent blood. And they said, so what? See you to it. And he throws the money down. It becomes blood money. And then he goes out and he, what does he do? Change his life? No. Feel bad? Yeah, he felt rotten. And he hung himself. He took his own life. Remorse is only productive if it produces behavior. But the word here, regretted, is talking about deep remorse. Well, we find that there are other passages that speak of a word like this or describes this. How about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7? You know what he called it? He called this deep remorse. He called it godly sorrow. What else? Remember when John the Baptist was preaching? The forerunner to Jesus, the cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus, the forerunner, you know what he called it? He called it this. He called the idea of deep remorse and godly sorrow, he called it fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, you feel bad enough to make a difference. You feel bad enough to change your life. Feeling bad is not good enough. And I want to say this too. Sometimes people have a hard time forgiving themselves for past decisions and behavior. I, I understand that. I do. I totally understand that. 
But everything in the Word of God regarding remorse is all for the purpose of making the change. In other words, make the change and then God accepts the change. It's not a matter of beating yourself up or thinking awful of yourself for the rest of your life. It ain't about that at all. It's this. You have deep remorse. It's godly sorrow. And what's it going to do? It's going to pursue and it's going to come out in fruits worthy of repentance. You're going to change your life. Again, guilt is good. world says, oh, no, we don't want, oh, no, no, no. We don't want you to be guilty. Yeah, guilt is good. You know why? Because that's what the, that little voice inside of me with my conscience and my guilt, that's what says, you know what? I've done wrong. I'm going to change my life. I feel bad about it. I'm going to make it right. And then I make it right. And you know what I get to do? I get to feel good again. Oh, if we would just follow the Bible, the Bible pattern. Now, here we go. This son said, he re, it says he regretted and he went. Well, let's talk about the second son. But then he came to the second, and he said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. There's an amazing piece here I want to I make a point of. First of all, first of all, the idea here in the word I, the word I is emphatic in the sentence. You know what that means? That means he is elevating himself. It is emphatic in the sentence of I go. Now, interesting about that, about I go. He's basically saying this. One scholar put it like this. A better rendering would be this. My brother did not go, but I certainly will. In other words, this is, in, this is emphatic in the sentence, meaning it is elevating himself. It's kind of like this. You didn't, but I will. Look at me, I will. It's the same thing. I certainly will. It's kind of like the guy that raises himself higher than somebody else. You're, are you thinking right now what I'm thinking about? Are you thinking about a certain example Jesus gave where somebody elevated himself above what he thought everybody else was? My mind goes to the Pharisee and the publican. I'm not going to go into that, but that's, what I, that's where my mind goes. They both go into the temple to pray. The Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like all the terrible, rotten, 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 rotten people of the world ain't even that guy over there, the hapless publican, right? And then the publican smote his breast as an outward sign of inward anguish and says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Okay. The Pharisee elevated himself above the publican or the tax collector. The same phraseology and meaning is found in this word I. He's talking about the second son. The second son is elevating himself in word alone that he's better than the first son and said, he didn't go but I will. And then we come to this word here. Now, this on the surface sounds like he's being very respectful. But this word, sir, is the word curry, the Greek word, and it means a superficial word of respect. In other words, it's just a word. It is just show there's no sincerity at all. Now, it's going to make sense when we describe who this is. But this is just a little... Story all of a sudden that he is telling and preaching. The idea is the whole thing is an act. 
Now, it doesn't say if this son intended to actually obey his father at the time. It doesn't say, and it really doesn't matter. All that matters is he disobeys, just like the Pharisees, as they say, and they do not. Jesus would speak about Pharisees, and he would say what they say, do it, because they know the law. They know the law. Every aspect of it. But don't follow their example. Why? They say, and they do not. So really, the idea is, who's going to do the will of the Father? The first son says, I'm not doing it. Why? I don't want to. But later he regrets it with sorrow, and he goes. The second son says, oh, this guy over here, my brother, he didn't go. I'll go. He even uses the word sir as a, as a point of respect. But he doesn't go. Jesus preaches all of that, and then Jesus says this. He says, which of the two did the will of his father? The Lord's story ends the same way that it began, and that's with a question. The question to the, and the answer to the question is obvious, and the answer to the question is immediate. Jesus wants to know, who did the will of the Father? And they said, well, the first. The first. Don't you see? Answering the Lord's question, though, by doing that, the leaders convict themselves because they were just like the second son. And then Jesus says this. He said to them assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Picture this. They thought they were leading the messianic parade and others were following. But much to their surprise, the Lord expresses just the opposite. Two most unlikely people are already leading the way. They are sinners. They are harlots. They are tax collectors because they accepted the ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus. So now all of a sudden, guess who's leading the way? One scholar said the sinners are preceding the Sanhedrists. It must engage these leaders, enrage these leaders, no doubt, because he mentions tax collectors and prostitutes. I thought this was kind of ironic. You know, the only gospel writer that wrote this parable was Matthew, and Matthew was also a tax collector. You think Matthew changed his life? Oh, he absolutely changed his life. What about that little old Zacchaeus? Think he changed his life? He sure did, because Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. What's he talking about, folks? The first son represents someone that rejects, makes bad choices, but now says, I've regretted it, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to make a change. Harlots and prostitutes, Fowler called, typify brazen impurity. And they're mentioned together. They become a proverbial phrase that describes all that is vile, loathsome, alien to the feelings of the pure, respectable, and even the patriotic, according to Broadus. Yet Jesus uses these types of people. He says that they have advantage, and here's why. Here's why. For John came again to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe. Notice, John came preaching the message of the kingdom. 
Jesus came preaching the message of the kingdom. They had two opportunities and they rejected them both. But tax collectors and harlots, they were the ones who went out. They were the ones that were baptized in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Listen to this. Maybe this is you. I have no idea. Those that are most blinded by sin are the ones who most clearly see their need for forgiveness. You ever known someone that lived a really hard life? Had made some really bad choices? Had lived a life of sin? But they come to the realization, I need to be forgiven, and then they find out they can. They find out that in Jesus Christ, they can be completely forgiven. So they seize the opportunity. They obey the gospel, and they become a phenomenal servant for the cause of Christ. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Sometimes the people that, have, that this world kicked around a little bit, become some of the greatest Christians later on in life. At the time, oh, blinded by sin. But in time, see clearly their need for forgiveness. That, folks, that is a picture of the tax collectors and the harlots. Notice this. John came, now he's speaking to these religious leaders here. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. You didn't. You didn't believe him at all. Then it says, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. Now they're going to get another chance. Watch this. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. You messed up twice. You had two choices. You had two chances. And you didn't. You didn't believe John when he came. You didn't believe John after. You didn't believe me either is the entire point. Fowler wrote this. What moral perversity it must take to mingle among the participants in the nation's greatest moral revival and remain totally unaffected by it and worse, publicly disclaim all ability to discern its origin in God. Have you ever known someone, folks, that they, you, you take them the word of God, you try to study with them, they hear sermon after sermon, the invitations are extended and all that and they just unfazed? Or... Like Joe Heisel said to me one time, oh, I just don't see it, as some would say. They didn't see it. But please understand, it's not because they couldn't. It's because they wouldn't. And that was willful rejection. What an amazing sermon. What an amazing response to the question that they said, what authority are you doing the things you're doing? Who gave you the authority to do what you did, Jesus? You just cleanse the temple. You've taken over here. We got the credentials. You don't. And Jesus says, I'll answer you. Just answer me one question. Baptism of John. Was it of man from heaven? Man or from heaven? They said, oh, we got a big problem. We got a big dilemma. So they said, ah, oh, we don't know. 
We cannot tell. Jesus says, I can't tell you either, but what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Man has two sons. Tells the sons to go into the vineyard and work. The first son says, not me, I'm not doing it. Then later regrets it and goes. The second son says, I will, absolutely, I'm better than him. But he doesn't go. And then he says, tell me, which one did the will of his father? And they said, the first. So, all that being said, let's wrap it up in conclusion. This is not, by the way, please get this. This is not a picture contrasting the rejection that the Jews had to the gospel in contrast to the Gentiles' acceptance of the gospel. That's not what's being contrasted here. What's being contrasted here is this, something very specific. It's talking about a contrast of the worst within Jewish society. Who were they? Harlots, publicans, and sinners. Now, this is all represented in the first son. Okay, so it's a contrast. Contrast between the very worst, the sinners, and that is a picture that Jesus describes with the first son. That is in contrast. This is the reason for his sermon. That is in contrast to the following. The very best in Jewish society. Who were they? They were the religious leaders. It is a, it is, it is a contrast or a comparison between the two. Now, who were the religious leaders described of as? They were the second son. That's the reason for the parable. And it's aimed at rebuking the hypocritical Jewish leaders. Now, the next parable is going to talk about the difference between the Jew and the Gentile in the wicked vine dressers. That's coming. But in this case, folks, he's just talking about two different people. He's talking about two classes of people. One that the world thought that they were just sinners, terrible people. And the other was the religious elite. And Jesus says that the publicans and the harlots and the sinners will go to the kingdom before you. Why? They did their father's bidding. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.